3: chapter 28 is the chapter in which jane's vulnerability becomes undeniable to us jane doesn't have a reference or enough money in her pockets so of course she finds herself homeless and starving within five days of being out of thornfield she wanders in the moors she asks for work and begs for food She goes to a church to ask for help, but the minister is out of town, and so she is turned away. Religion is useless to her. She has some faith in nature, but even that turns on her. At first, the heather is a welcome bed, but she ends up under a rock in the rain, literally. After days and days of having no shelter and hardly any food, she is on the brink of death. She is dragging herself across the moors in the midst of a storm when she sees the light of a house. In desperation, she goes there. She watches the inhabitants through the window. It is two young, beautiful women with whom Jane feels an immediate affinity and a housekeeper. Jane knocks and attempts to beg her way in. The housekeeper, Hannah, does not want to let Jane in. What if Jane is a criminal? Hannah shuts the door in Jane's face, and Jane lays herself down to die. But then, with all hope seemingly lost, a man, Sinjin, arrives and insists that Jane is let in. Jane's rescuer, Sinjin, and the two beautiful women inside, who are named Diana and Mary, decide to try to take care of Jane. Jane has a gentle accent, and her clothes, while dirty, are of a good kind. So they feed her and give her a comfortable bed. And so, Jane is saved, but not before her suffering and vulnerability have been made excruciatingly clear. In chapter 29, we find out that Jane has slept for three days. When Jane wakes up, her gown has been cleaned and pressed, though her gown hangs on her, for she's lost weight. She goes downstairs and the questions from the household begin immediately, who is she? How did she find herself in this situation? Sinjin is patronizing from the word go and says that she's probably just fought with her friends and will soon return to them. Jane tells him that that is not the case. She gives them the name Jane Elliot, but admits that it's a fake name. She finds out some about them. They are the Rivers siblings who are in their ancestral home because they recently lost their father who'd lived there. Jane, in turn, tells them a little bit about herself, that she went to the Lowood School and that she became a governess, but she refuses to tell them why she had to leave her last situation. She asks them if they will host her until she can find honest work. Sinjin, it turns out, is the minister who is absent from the last town, but he now promises to help find her a job, although he warns that it will be work of the humblest kind. Chapter 30 sees Jane in a sort of domestic bliss. She falls in love with Diana and Mary. She studies with them. Diana teaches her German, and Jane likes to learn. Jane teaches Mary to draw, and Jane likes to teach. The Rivers sisters, it turns out, are both governesses. Their time of grieving for their father at Morehouse is almost up. But Jane's time with them, a month or so, is a happy time. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Jane's relationship with Diana and Mary and her relationships with women in general in the novel.
1: There is this third possibility in Jane Eyre, which is sisterhood and primarily homosocial relations. There's really beautiful scenes of her conversations with Miss Temple and Helen Burns. There's really some very lovely scenes of her. And Adele as well. And, and then, of course, with the Rivers sisters. I mean, when Jane first gets to Morehouse and she's looking into the window, her yearning is to be with the Rivers sisters, to be with Diana and Mary. And she does achieve that. But again, it's not sustained. So there is always, I think, in texts from the 18th and the 19th century, a fully homosocial world. One that's kind of outside of dominant systems of uh, conversation and behavior that is safe but also isolating. It's finances that
3: break up the happy family. Diana and Mary have to work at a fancy house where Jane tells us that they are treated no better than the cook. And St. John must return to work at his parish in Morton. Sinjin and Jane do not get along as well as Jane does with the sisters. She calls the sisters compassionate for taking her in, but she calls Sinjin merely charitable. Even in Diana's opinion, Sinjin is hard-hearted. He is restless, aloof, and no-nonsense. It is only when Diana and Mary are set to leave that Jane has the courage to ask the scary Sinjin if he's managed to find a job for her. He has. He's found her a job as a school teacher in Morton to poor village girls. She'll get her own house and even a student to help her with housework. Sinjin keeps calling the work degrading, and Jane agrees, but takes the job anyway. She's excited to be independent and of use, and Sinjin genuinely smiles when the whole thing is settled. The chapter ends with the last bit of news. A letter arrives for the River's siblings. Their uncle has died, and even though he died rich, he has left the River's kids nothing. All of his money will be given to someone else. And so Diana and Mary must leave for their jobs, John and Hannah must leave for the Morton Parsonage, and Jane must leave for her schoolhouse. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
2: And I'm Lauren Sandler. And
3: this is On Air from Hot and Bothered.
2: Before we jump into the chapter, I always forget that this is how this name is spoken. And I always hear St. John in my head when I'm reading. But you, Vanessa, are saying St. John. And it's for a reason. Will you explain it to us?
3: Yeah, I don't know if there's like a deep reason. I just know that this is how British people pronounce it. Charlotte Bronte's mother's name and her oldest sister's name is spelt M-A-R-I-A. And I would say Maria and British people say Mariah. And it's the same with St. John. I absolutely would read this as St. John. And yet, you know, when I listen to the Tandy Newton version of the novel and when you go to the Bronte Parsonage and when you talk to Bronte scholars, they all say St. John and not St. John. But yes, it is spelled St. John.
2: I remember studying this in a seminar, studying Jane Eyre in a seminar, and everyone was talking about Sinjin, and I had this moment of panic that I somehow had read the wrong section of the book, (laughs) and it took me a while to figure it out. So thank you for explaining that.
3: Lauren, as I was reading this section, I was just like grateful once again that you are the co-host of this podcast with me, because we are in the part of the book where... Jane is very literally housing insecure, and you have spent a lot of your career investigating this kind of phenomenon that is still happening almost two hundred years later to women in the United States. And so, I would love to know what you are teaching us today.
2: Oh, I, I'm so eager to talk about this. And and first, I just want to mention that back then, when there were stories of poverty, they tended to be stories of urban poverty, and. As now, when people would picture someone who was poor and homeless, they would often picture a man or a boy, right? So we had Oliver Twist. We had big stories in Illustrated London News and Sketch that shocked readers with tales of poor boys sleeping on the streets and a lot of poverty in London. And in fact, there were an estimated 30,000 homeless kids just in 1848 in London, either people who were orphaned or had been put out to work by their parents and not brought back in. But what Bronte does is she focuses on just a moment of homelessness in a young woman's life in a rural situation, and what she shows us is something that I certainly encountered reporting on homelessness in Brooklyn, that then as now, what we have is a population of people who are being treated as suspect, as immoral, as dangerous, just because they are women in need. You know, you have this already marginalized group. We've spent hours together talking about how marginalized women were of any class in England at the time. But then take away all of the trappings of what it means to be employed, what it means to be housed. And you are seen as someone who is either there to snatch a job from someone or there to steal or just as immoral in the age, there is a sex worker. And it's interesting to note that shelters that sprung up in the aftermath of this book to help women were mainly only for women who were sex workers, and they were not there to give shelter or food. They were really there primarily to re-educate women, to save them in some sense. They needed to be domesticated. And that was the crisis that these homes were addressing, not the lack of shelter or food. But Bronte understands something That I feel very deeply, which is that without shelter and without basic nourishment, but especially without shelter, nothing else can happen. And this is what the women who I spent time with who experience homelessness will tell you that first and foremost, like that is the bottom of the pyramid if you don't have a place to live then nothing else is possible after that questions like employment education etc matter but that is just the absolute base element of need and one that society then and now was entirely ill equipped to provide people and so women anyone who is homeless but in this case especially women would end up in circumstances that were literally life or death circumstances And of course, and this is something I've seen time and again, what saves her in many ways is the sense that she does belong to a different class, that she's not a beggar the way that Hannah thinks that she is, that she's educated. And because she can claim that class identity, it's it's the thing that, that lets that door open at Morehouse, which of course is what changes everything. And so just feeling that class system within poverty and that sense of identity within poverty, the need to be of a higher class than other people who are also starving and homeless. That too just feels so familiar and accurate. So reading these pages, I'm just, I'm really amazed by how much it seems Bronte deeply understood and also how stuck we continue to be in what Bronte understood.
3: It's uncanny to me the way that Jane tries to convince Hannah. She ends up on this doorstep. She has not eaten for days other than a crust of bread that has been given to her because most likely the pigs wouldn't want to eat it, right? And so she... Right. She shows up. She's begging to be let in. Hannah thinks she's a beggar and so doesn't let her in. And then she and Hannah get to have this conversation a couple of days later when Jane is doing better. And she says to Hannah, I don't like you because you thought I was too poor to let me in. And some of the best people on earth were poor and didn't have any money to their name. In the meantime, while Jane is telling us about this conversation that she and Hannah had, she is essentially saying to us, Hannah's accent might be unintelligible to you because it's such a low-born accent. So she translates what Hannah sounded like and then what she said. And then she makes this comment, you know, Hannah's a housekeeper and cook. And then a few pages later, she's like, can you believe that Diana and Mary are gonna be so degraded as to be servants in a household and no more appreciated than cooks? It's like she's preaching this Christian ideal of like even the poorest among us like deserve respect. And yet she in the same moment is not showing the same respect to people who are of a different class than her.
2: And of course, it's a much more compelling narrative to have our heroine, who we know was much higher born and has this temporary crisis where she's wandering the moors in this state of desperation. Like, that's a good poverty story, right? That's the poverty story we all want to hear. And then we want to hear her being rescued. The story of Hannah, like, that's just generations. And... That's a system. That's a system that functions in a totally different way where there is no narrative. There's no beginning, middle and end. There's no salvation from it. That's just what it means to never, ever be able to class jump, to feel like no matter what you might dream, the possibility of living outside your lines is impossible. And of course, this is a very old English story, that notion of of being conscripted within class that way. I also feel like despite our American mythology, it's an American story, too. And these aren't stories that people tend to have a hunger for, or we like to tell, it's much easier for Bronte to bring us into Jane's crisis and then not worry about Hannah so much.
3: Yeah. You know, and then when she starts having this conversation with John and the Rivers sisters, I think it's so interesting. Her anonymity is so important to her that she makes up a fake name and yet her credibility as being part of this higher class is so important to her that she tells them where she went to school, which would make her very easily to figure out who she is, right? She says, I learned there for five years and taught there for three, and it's the Lowood Institution with Mr. Brocklehurst. That is one letter. Sinjin has to write one letter and be like, who was a student there for five years and taught there for three? It's very important to her to prove to them that she's educated and that it was really just a tremendous amount of bad luck that got her into this situation. And it's also important to her that they know that it wasn't her immorality, right? She's like, look, I'm actually very educated and I didn't do anything wrong. Just something bad happened to me and I need you to believe me. And so she's still exchanging in the currency of her privilege.
2: Who do you think she's protecting? Is she protecting Rochester? Why would she not want to tell this story? She has done things that, as we all know, I think are way too Christian. (laughs) I mean, she's like she's gone so far to be so totally blameless. It's interesting how much she's still trying to protect something there.
3: I mean, Because she doesn't tell us, right? Like I can only project myself into the situation. And I think I wouldn't tell and wouldn't know who I was protecting. I would feel humiliated and like no one would believe me, right? She goes to such lengths as we've talked about before to tell us that she really didn't know it was the wife upstairs. That even though she was only a tapestry away, she thought it was Grace Poole. And yes, she thought it was weird that Grace Poole was able to keep her job after biting and stabbing people, but she really thought it was Grace Poole. And so I think if she tells the story, she loses some credibility. And, And then I also think she's probably protecting Rochester as well. I can just imagine feeling like it's a third rail and not knowing who it would burn if you touch it. But until I can suss that out, until I can figure out how to tell the story entirely on my own terms, until I have a warm bed to sleep in, I'm just not going to even tell you about the third rail.
2: Right, because to her, it's just danger. Yeah. Also, I think you really need to write a romance novel called On the Other Side of the Tapestry, <laughs> where Bertha and Jane fall in love. Oh my God, I would read that. <laughs> I mean,
3: which is one other thing I want to mention in in this chapter, in chapter 28, is the moment in which Jane goes to a woman and says, like, what kind of work is there in this town? And, and the woman essentially says, there's only men's work in this town. There's a factory, but they only hire men. And then when Jane says, what do the women do? And she says, what they can. And it, there is this notion of like, and get out because there isn't even enough work for all of us. Right. Like she she's a foreigner in this town and there is xenophobia and like fear of an outsider coming in to take our jobs, even on this micro
2: level. And of course, we don't have to explain how contemporary that is. But there's also something else that I think is happening in that conversation, which is when that woman says women are doing what they can, what they can do usually is please men for money and I was reading this paper that I found really fascinating about how prior to this age, there were some women who practiced law or were physicians, that that was a possibility before the Victorian era. And then things became so constricted and conservative for what women were supposed to do. And yet women were allowed to continue being sex workers, even if it was seen as immoral and even if it was seen as, you know, a reason to rescue them. They weren't allowed to continue being lawyers or doctors. And I think that that hierarchy of what we will privilege in a society is so chilling. And I think that we think of time as moving in one direction, that we think of liberation as being a linear process. And I think it's always so important to remember, and I think we've had a dose of this in this country, certainly in the past several years, that the pendulum swings both ways. And I feel Bronte feeling that in this chapter, too.
3: Yeah.
2: Can I
3: tell you something that just occurred to me like yesterday? (laughs) You know that like so much of my relationship with Jane is that I use it as a way to sort of explore things in my own family history. I use it to like explore the way that I think about the world. And I see Bertha very much as this vulnerable person who I really want to just like tie my fate to. And it just occurred to me literally yesterday that it never crosses Jane's mind to try to help Bertha, that at no point is she like, oh, maybe I shouldn't leave tonight because maybe I should try to get Bertha out with me. And I don't judge her for that, right? Like what the heck would she do leaving in the middle of the night with a woman who might be violent and Jane has no money and Jane would be kidnapping this woman legally. She has no right to Bertha. What she would do was illegal and dangerous, But that's always the kind of thing that I'm asking of people, right? I I want people to do the radical, scary, dangerous thing. And it feels like a lot of this book is Jane justifying these moves, which gets back to the why is she lying about who she is, right? She's like, these were the choices that I made, but they weren't actually choices. I had no choice. I think that that's part of how she's presenting herself to Hannah Right. It's not that I misspent my money, but like you have to let me in. It's raining.
2: I really agree with you in terms of the framing that she has no choice, and that's the way that she presents everything to us. But I think that she doesn't see Bertha as another human to save. I think that her responses to Bertha, her descriptions of Bertha are so dehumanizing, right? Bertha's the hyena, Bertha's the maniac, Bertha's the animal. There's no form of sisterhood, there that Jane can access in her own empathy, in her own imagination. And I really struggle with that.
3: We actually had someone with the handle C um, who tweeted at us explaining that Charlotte Bronte agreed with you. She wrote in a letter in 1848, and I'll read you the quote. It is true that profound pity ought to be the only sentiment elicited by the view of such degradation talking about the degradation of Bertha, and she continues, and equally true is that I have not sufficiently dwelt on that feeling. I have erred in making horror too predominant. I found that so interesting.
2: I do too. I wrestle with the word pity, but I think it meant something different to Bronte than it does to me right now. Yes. I I like that she she reckoned with that, internally at least. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing that's been driving me crazy about her departure is that she left without Rochester paying her what he owed her. And she kept working and working and working because she needed her independence. And he's still given her nothing for all of her months of labor. And the fact that she was in such an emotional state, and it was such a romantic emotional state for her, that her fight or flight just kicked in. She couldn't fight. She had to fly. And she took off meant that she never went to her employer (laughs) and said, hey, you owe me back pay, like going pretty much all the way back from the day I showed up here. And I need to go make a life without you now because of all the ways that you gaslit me and tried to destroy my life and my reputation. And the least you can do is pay me what you owe me. And of course, I'm sure she felt like she wouldn't have the strength to to leave if she had that conversation with him, but the fact that he has had the power to withhold her wages throughout, that there was no timely payment system, that there was no sense that this is something that wasn't just symbolic, but an actual need, it's felt all along like Rochester has treated her wage earning as an act of mere symbolism. And in fact, we now see what happens when she leaves, having just done this work for less than 20 shillings. And it just, it's horrifying to me. And I just wanted to point that out.
3: I mean, I will say, you and I just watched the Michael Fassbender version of this movie. And the one major change that the film does from the book is at the end, Mrs. Fairfax and Jane get reunited. And Mrs. Fairfax says to Jane, why didn't you come to me? I would have given you money. And I'm like, I understand that you couldn't go to Rochester. You could have gone to Mrs. Fairfax. And then Mrs. Fairfax in the morning could have been like, I paid Jane her wages out of my own money. Give me the, give me her wages. Right? Like there, there were other workarounds. Of course, Rochester should have paid her on a schedule that was agreed upon and Jane should have the money. But I just, I want to give room to the fact that I understand why Jane then didn't demand the money she was right afraid he would convince her to stay or use it as a way to manipulate her which we absolutely know he's capable of but her just sneaking out in the middle of the night i don't want to victim blame her but come on lady be a little bit planful here
2: it just also reminds me Rochester's ability to offer employment and then withhold wages, that sort of power, it feels like it rhymes so much in some way with St. John's way to create employment and then withhold any information about it. Just this withholding aspect. It's not just that they have money and the ability to create and offer employment. And even that power isn't where it stops. They then can withhold information wages, explanations, you name it. Like there's just something about that that feels so toxic to me. And the fact that it keeps coming up with these men is it's really Bronte flagging something for us that I feel quite deeply.
3: Yeah. So now is when I have to confess to you that I hate Sinjin more than I hate any other man in this book. I'm like John Rochester, Brocklehurst. John Reed, put them all in a room and I kill off Sinjin
2: first every single time. Before Brocklehurst, huh? Yes. I have to say, for me, Sinjin comes a close second to Brocklehurst, but I have a different sort of rage and resentment towards him.
3: So the close reading that I want us to do today, I think it's to the heart of my hatred of Sinjin. I think that Sinjin is the ultimate gaslighter insofar as he performs blamelessness to such, like, he's like the method actor of blamelessness. And here, here's the quote that I want us to look at. Zealous in his ministerial labors, blameless in his life and habits. He yet did not appear to enjoy that mental serenity, that inward content, which should be the reward of every sincere Christian and practical philanthropist. And I think that this quote like gets to the heart of what I hate about him, which is that he's blameless in his life and habits. And therefore we are all inferior and he's not even happy. So none of us get to be happy. I remember I had a boss... I was 22. He was in his late 40s. And he really believed that if he was working, I should be working. And I was like, this is your company and you get paid a lot more than I do. And you have some like sickness where you feel like you always have to be working. And I don't have any of those things. And John is just like always out there doing good and never is like, and I had a good day. Now it's time to just sit back and read a novel and draw and enjoy other people's company. He's like always visiting another parishioner and then never comes home and is like, that was a, a job well done today. Like that is an oppressive person to be around. At least Rochester could be a good time.
2: Thinking about St. John in this conversation right now talking to you just pulled up this memory of Ted Haggard, who was the pastor of this massive mega church called New Life Church in Colorado Springs. He was one of the most influential evangelicals of about 15 years ago. I wrote about him in my book Righteous. I wrote about him later when he was outed by the man he had been paying to have sex with for years and Really thinking about how much his incredibly sanctimonious and totalizing performance of faith really was just there as a mask on his own, totally legitimate human desires and feelings. And there's something that just feels so familiar about Sinjin to me. He feels like so many men who have wanted to debate me about my own atheism or make me question my own feminism, all of these things that that they consider to be so reprehensible because they don't align with how they have chosen this pure, sanctified way of living that to me is it's it's just a big cover up. And I hate it. And I hate Sinjin there. I said it.
3: Lauren, when I was teaching high school English, one of the books on the curriculum for American literature was John Krakauer's book, Into the Wild, which is about Chris McCandless, who is this kid who decided to like absolve himself of all of his privilege and like try to live off the land. And obviously Chris McCandless had every right to make his own decisions. And, and yet I found him to be this like similar kind of insufferable zealot, right? Like his mother was so tormented not knowing where Chris was that every time she left for the grocery store, she would leave a note on the front door. Like, Chris, I'm at the grocery store. Please wait in case he came home. Like they wanted to downsize their house and she wouldn't move because she was like, what if he can't find us? And I know that women do this too, but this just feels gendered to me because Sinjin does a similar thing, right? Diana gives a little speech towards the end of our reading for today where she says to Jane, Like, you must think Sinjin is weird and strict, but I love him very much. But I am so upset about the fact that he is making life choices that really negatively impact me and that they are not gonna be able to live together as a family that she might not see Sinjin again for years, if not ever again, because of decisions that Sinjin is unilaterally making. And I just see the same kind of Chris mccann thing here, this gendered thing of a man's ambitions and desires to live a certain kind of virtuous life, leaving behind the women of their lives. I mean, it, and it's, this might be just like a personal hobby horse of mine, but like, it's the part in like the King Arthur's story. I'm like, God, Lancelot is leaving and so is King Arthur. And like, what about Guinevere? Like just women getting left behind And men doing it under the guise of goodness when really it's about glory is what drives me up the wall.
2: I totally agree with you. I also can't help but wonder while I'm listening to you describe something that I really feel that I think that Rochester would say the same thing about Jane. I think that Rochester would say, oh, Jane, you thought you had no choice. Jane, you thought that you had some higher power telling you that you had to do this. So you ran off and you left me and the life that we were supposed to have together. And I think it's part of why I hate that Jane leaves is I ascribe some of the same behavior to her, even if systemically it has a rationale that, you know, These men have nothing but power and agency, and therefore they get to make all the choices that they want. Jane is struggling to grasp whatever agency she can by leaving, but I do think that there is a reflection there.
3: See, for me, I think that Jane is justifying her fear of being in destitution with glory rather than the other way around, which is pretending that it's about something, but really it's about glory. And the fact that it's inverted seems
2: important. I agree. I agree. I was just having a rare moment of empathy for Rochester.
3: (laughs) No, totally. It's why I like Rochester better than Sinjin. Rochester is like, look, I want what I want. But Sinjin is like, I'm never going to talk to my sisters again. They don't have a house. They just lost their father. Now they'll lose a brother. Oh, well, like Rochester, at least like, Has to pay someone off.
2: I don't know. And Rochester is heat and emotion and passion. And St. John is just nothing but coldness and repression. I hate it. Me too. (laughs) Can you tolerate a cheesy moment for me? Oh, my God. Always. Okay. So reading this chapter and feeling her sisterhood with Mary and Diana and feeling how much that is born out of a mutual love for books together, there's something that, I just love it. You know, it's it's reminding me of how when we meet Jane, she's reading. And we're probably bookish people ourselves reading and finding ourselves in Jane. And now here she is in a community, a sisterhood of readers. And it bonds them together. And it feels like the truest family she's had yet. And OK, so here's really the cheese ball moment. Ready? So this is how I've gotten to know you is through reading this book with you and discussing this book with you. And you have gone from someone who I don't know very well to someone who I feel is family. And I think that that has a lot to do with the incredible sisterhood of what it means to read together and think about literature together. And I think that it's easy to forget in our lives, especially, you know, our internet-obsessed disconnected lives, how incredibly powerful it is to just read a book with someone who you might not know tremendously well, but becomes a sister through the process of knowing each other through it. And, you know, Bronte knew what she was talking about. This is what she did with her sisters. This was the truest form of love and happiness for the Bronte sisters. And to be able to share in that in some way is just incredibly meaningful to me.
3: Uh, I, I, just like felt that in my like whole body. And first of all, just, I love you too. And so there's that. And yeah, I, I hadn't put that together, right? That this is the vignette of like her sitting with Emily and Anne, Jane, Diana, and Mary sitting there the way that these three women did and wrote their works of genius together. And Jane is upset that Diana and Mary have to go off and work. And it, there's that classist comment that I made fun of, but it's also like, you know, what we know the Bronte sisters said, which was when I teach, I don't get to use my imagination, right? Like they they wanted work that would allow them to think and breathe. And I'm just so grateful to you for pointing out to me that this this moment is actually the moment that Charlotte knew best. Of what it was like to sit with two people who like she she describes it in the most romantic words possible if we liked to read the same books right like it's like what's better than that and yeah I'm just really grateful for that image that you've given me and I'm really grateful that you
2: agreed to read this book with me
3: and we get to keep reading together what are you excited to read next week
2: I am excited to hate Jen <laughs> in newly specific ways with every fiber of my being with you, Vanessa.
3: I will say that the funniest moment of the book is in these upcoming chapters. So he's horrible in these chapters and I'm so excited to hate him, but he does do one of the funniest things ever. So I'm excited to talk about that. So we had all of these lingering questions about Sinjin, how to think about him. He is such a complicated character that sort of just gets dropped in our laps. So I thought I would call somebody who I respect so much, her mind and her writing, Sarah Marshall, the host of the podcast You're Wrong About, one of my favorite podcasts. Sarah wrote her thesis on Jane Eyre, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about Sinjin. Hi, Sarah. Hello. <laughs> okay, so I know that you happen to love this book, Jane Eyre. And so I would love to hear just a little bit about what you love about it.
0: One is that it's an incredibly beautifully written book. It's such a joy to read. To me, the experience of reading it is transporting in a way that, that not a lot of books have been for me in my life. It's the first book that ever made me cry. And then point two is that Jane Eyre is a big weirdo. And point three, which I think unfolds point two, is that a lot of books like this or that get mentioned in the same sense as Jane Eyre feature characters who are kind of very broad and easy to relate to. And Jane Eyre is not that. She is a very specific person. And I think that's so important. And not everybody knows that. Although if they're reading this book with you, then they for sure do. Yeah, she is a delightful weirdo. And she's also difficult and prickly and complicated. And again, we have a real deficit of that, I think. Yeah.
3: And so we come, we've come we come to this part of the book where we meet Sinjin Rivers. And I'm wondering what you think about Sinjin as a hero. We haven't met him in full yet. We haven't seen him in full yet. But what do you make of Sinjin?
0: I mean... Kind of embarrassingly reading these chapters before talking to you today, I kind of went into full biographical scholar mode. And I was like, this is like, this is the beloved brother who's like your awesome brother who you love so much. And he's meant for greater things than this stupid town and is therefore doomed. And I feel like it's reductive to just try and do any kind of A equals one, B equals two thing with writers' lives. But I feel, I mean, I see... Based on my knowledge of her life, Charlotte Bronte's brother and father in the character, and I, I, yeah, just reading it made me think about how this book feels to me, like the work you do sorting through, like, what do you want in a partner and how much of that is just decided by your weird dad? And how can you kind of remove that from the romantic mix if possible?
3: One of the things that we talked about in today's episode is that Jane hanging out with Mary and Diana is like the closest thing to an autobiographical moment for Mm -hmm. Charlotte, of Charlotte sitting and writing with Emily and Anne. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't made Branwell slash Sinjin part of that, but it's interesting because she's making Sinjin a much more romantic, idealized version of
0: Branwell, right? Mm Yeah. And I mean, one of the nice things about making a book about your own life is that everybody gets a glow up. And like there is something really sweet to me, too, about as a Bronte sister, where to me, the joy and sadness of that family's life always seemed to be. I don't know. I think of them as like the Tenenbaums of the 19th century north of England, where like they were very special and they were like professionally of their own family. Like they were they were Bronte's and nobody else was like them and it was like pretty miserable to be a brontë cuz like everybody died <laughs> really fast sometimes but you got to create these fictional worlds with your surviving siblings for as long as they managed to cling to this mortal coil and just the idea of of being part of that family and imagining A stranger coming to your window and being like, oh, look at these wonderful, refined, smart sisters who are learning German together. That's the family I want to be a part of. Like, that's so it's so sweet.
3: So do you think that his power so like Diana and Mary, right, like they adore him and Mm -hmm. their lives revolve around him in part because he's the man. And so like his decisions are going to impact theirs.
0: Yeah, and it, like, and he's a he's a character who seems shaped by the fact that he's been doted on by women for his whole life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying Rochester is the pick of the litter either, but I feel like to me Jane Eyre is at heart about like maintaining dignity despite your propensity for shitty guys, and like that's very important to me. There's also
3: something about Rochester versus Sinjin where Rochester f- seems able to easily pulled Jane into his orbit. Hmm. But he's not objectively handsome.
0: He's not objectively charming. Despite being played by a million hotties ever since. I know. I think I've spoken an Adam Driver adaptation into being. Because I think Rochester <laughs> is an Adam Driver type where he's like so ugly it's bewitching. Oh I love that
3: casting. <laughs> <laughs> But I feel like Sinjin, Rochester and Jane have this connection, whereas Sinjin is like the popular guy who can get anyone, right? Like he, he feels more like the potential for a cult leader. Yeah. And that is what I entirely distrust about him. It's like how when I lived in New York, I immediately hated the two good looking people on the subway. I'm like, no, anything I feel about your special attention is about you and not how you feel about me.
0: I just want more and weirder Jane Eyre adaptations and I think it could be a great comedy beat that moment where Jane's talking about Sinjin giving this like epic fire and brimstone sermon in this like little village church full of people who are probably just like really tired and they're like maids or whatever during the week and they're like "Why? why is this so long? <laughs> <laughs> Read the room, Sinjin. <laughs> <laughs> like that could be really funny. I think like we have not yet had a, a Jane Eyre adaptation that seizes on how funny this book is in many parts. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. This was like everything I missed about grad school and and nothing that I was happy to flee
3: you've been listening to on air we're a small show so we need your support to run if you can please consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com hot and bothered brompod. if you love the show please leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to us we are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter, and we are distributed by ACAST. We would like to thank Roxanne Everly and Sarah Marshall for talking to us, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. And just a small announcement, everyone. There was just too much to read. We, we had assigned ourselves that we were going to read chapters 31 through 34 for next week, but we're doing 31, 32, and 33. We're going to stop there. So... If you're reading along, just read one fewer chapters. Chapters 31 through 33 is what we'll talk about next week.